Live from New York, I'm Julia Chatterley. This is First Move, and here's your need to know. Diddy does it. The Chinese ride-hailing app raises $4 billion in its U.S. IPO. Tourism trounced. The U.N. warns COVID could cost $4 trillion. And space splurge. Elon Musk admits his internet satellite business will cost billions. It's Wednesday. Let's make a move. Welcome once again to First Move this Wednesday, a day where we focus on the Bulls, the Bears and yes, the Three Lions. Congratulations to England on their, quite frankly, astonishing win against Germany on Tuesday. Sorry to our German viewers. I hope you're not former German viewers. Please stay with me. And good luck too to England this weekend against Ukraine. And from a fab football crew to a wow Wall Street debut, the Lions share a focus today on the Chinese ride-hailing giant Diddy Global and a lion-esque roar, I think, from investors too as Diddy raised more than $4 billion. As I mentioned, we'll discuss the Diddy delights and potential downsides too perhaps as well throughout the show today. And from a headline-grabbing app to a softer open, as you can see, on tap. Not much, though. It's the last trading day of the month, the quarter and the first half of the year, which can always be pretty lively. The S&P, though, on target for a fifth straight month of gains. That said, the third quarter could be increasingly choppy, I think, if higher growth and inflation pressures the Fed to quicken its policy pivot. So we'll certainly be talking and watching for that too. European stocks, meanwhile, pairing recent gains. Interesting on an inflation read there, though. Prices actually eased from a two and a half year high in May, currently lying just below the European Central Bank's below or around 2% target. What about in Asia? Well, China ending the quarter with gains, but factory activity there slowed in part due to extreme weather-driven power shortages, the worst energy crisis there in a decade that could also weigh on export growth. An important Chinese export topping our drivers today too. As I mentioned, ride-hailing giant and mobility company Diddy revving up for its U.S. stock market debut in around half an hour's time. The Chinese company raised over $4 billion in the IPO, giving it a valuation of some $67 billion. Claire Sebastian joins me on this. Claire, I'm so excited about this one. You only have to have driven or at least sat in a traffic jam, perhaps, in one of the biggest cities in China, the first tier, second tier, third tier or fourth tier quite frankly, to understand the potential for the gig economy and ride sharing in China. What do we make of this one? What do we need to know? Yeah, so Didi Festival uh, is being called, and quite rightly in many ways, the Uber of China. It dominates the ride-hailing uh, market there. And you know, I just want to give you a sense of, of the size of the company, because by many metrics, it's actually bigger than Uber. Revenues last year were $21 billion versus $11 billion for Uber. It has 156 million monthly active users compared to $98 million for Uber. So this is a giant. But as you say, they are expanding far beyond the sort of core ride hailing. They've got e-bikes and things like that as well. They're really investing in technology. They're really keen on electric vehicles. They're not only building out their own fleet with a purpose-built 
uh, electric vehicle designed for ride sharing. That's called the D1. But they're also investing heavily uh, in autonomous driving. Interestingly, where Uber has actually scaled back its ambitions due to the cost uh, of something like that. Didi is really ramping up here, investing in level four. That's fully autonomous driving technology. It already has a fleet of around 100 uh, fully autonomous vehicles. So this is a bet on 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 the sort of the consumption of ride hailing in China, but also on Didi's Didi's sort of embrace of this technology and its ability to grow what it calls the future of mobility. So so a really interesting opportunity uh, for U.S. investors. It it is, though, a bet on China. 93% of Didi sales are in China. Oh, Claire, I love that you mentioned the fact that people are calling this the Uber of China, which I think, quite frankly, is so 2017, because, of course, they beat out Uber in, in China and Uber invested in them back then. For me, and you touched on this, I think, the difference between what ride hailing is in the West, in the United States and in Europe, where it's kind of a luxury, it's relatively expensive, access to cars is really easy, you can still get around. In China, you try buying a car, affording one, but then getting hold of one, try getting a license plate, and then if you imagine... Ma- manage to get those things, you're told, sorry, you can't drive this week or sorry, you can't drive this day because of the license plate, because of sheer congestion. So for me, I love the fact that actually the cost per kilometre in ride hailing in China is cheaper than actually a cost per kilometre of actually owning a car and getting round. This according to the CIC. Um, So much in this that I find quite exciting. What about growth opportunities? Is China enough given urbanization over the coming years. Well, they did commission this report from a Chinese consultancy called CIC, which they quote widely in their IPO prospectus, Julia. And that would that would suggest the statistics from this report that there is a huge growth opportunity in China, that this really is a bet on, on China's continued urbanization. I want to pull out some, some of those statistics for you. They say, according to CIC, that, that uh, the growth of these cities will drive the urbanization rate to 70% by 2030 in China. That's an additional 200 million city residents. They say that the growth opportunity in what's called tier three and beyond cities is even bigger. Currently, the shared mobility penetration of those smaller cities is 7% compared to 24% in the larger tier one and tier two cities, according to CIC. So urbanization in China are big growth opportunities. They are, with those extra sort of 7% of sales outside of China, going into other markets. Their first ones were Brazil and Mexico. They are uh, rolling out their sort of electric vehicle offerings uh, in in those markets too. So certainly there is opportunities outside of China. And I think they're looking for more of those emerging markets where, where, where some of the similar opportunities for urbanization and that kind of growth exist similar to in China. Yeah, makes perfect sense to me. And I know another big one, you mentioned it as well, the technology aspects, things like autonomous technology as well, they would argue, I think, is a growth opportunity too. Going to be interesting to see how this one trades. Claire Sebastian, thank you for your wisdom on this one. All right, let's move on. The toll. On tourism, the global pandemic could cost the tourism industry more than $4 trillion by the end of this year. That, according to a new UN report. Anna Stewart has been reading through that report for us. Anna, it makes pretty bleak reading, I think, and they play out three scenarios. The cost in some of these scenarios actually more than $4 trillion, if you include, of course, what we saw last year and the damage last year and what continues this year. And I think what some people will be shocked by is that a year on, after multiple vaccines have been developed and rolled out, actually the case could be as bad as it was last year for tourism. Taking a look at the three scenarios that the UN report gives, the worst case sees a similar decline in tourism from last year, and that results in a global uh, GDP knock-on effect of $2.4 trillion. 
taking into account not just the loss of tourism receipts, but the overall impact on uh, indirect sectors like agriculture and so on. Uh, The middle one you see there, that is the most optimistic scenario with some recovery there in tourism around the world. And the third option, Julia, this is really interesting. This is a two-speed recovery. This is if uh, countries who have 50% or more of the nation vaccinated see a recovery. So tourism is still down from 2019, but only by, say, 37 percent. But countries who do not have that level of vaccination are impacted badly. And you see a huge impact, actually, in terms of the global economy, uh, $1.8 trillion down uh, as a result of that. And I think the worry here for me, Julia, is when we were looking at the 2020 report and their various scenarios then, the worst case scenario was actually, as it turns out, optimistic. Yeah, I mean, this is quite terrifying, quite frankly. And I think it goes to the point that we've heard from not only the UN, but from the IMF, from the World Bank. And we discussed it with Neil Ferguson yesterday, the need for vaccines. If we want to get the tourism industries back up, we have to get more vaccines out there to the nations that are most reliant on tourism. And they are, in many cases, emerging market and and poorer nations around the world. And they are being impacted much, much worse in in terms of the impact of tourism. Many of them, of course, much more reliant on tourism than some of the advanced economies, particularly international tourism. Um, But yeah, and the advanced economies that actually this report brings out who are faring better as a result of vaccine are the US, France, Germany, the UK and Switzerland. The ambitious plan to vaccinate 40% of the world by the end of this year and 60% by the middle of next year, the IMF says, will cost $50 billion. But this report makes absolutely clear that the benefits far outweigh uh, that cost. They are worth it. Um, and actually, experts think that tourism will not recover this year or next year, uh, but the year after that. And actually, 50% of the experts interviewed by this report put it even further so 2024 and beyond julia yeah wow says it all anna stewart thank you for that update there bleak as it is all right let's move on to some stratospheric spending literally yes elon musk is at it again this time we're talking a satellite network called starlink that one day aims to provide high-speed internet wherever you are in the world and it could take as much as 30 billion dollars to do it paula monica joins me now what's 30 billion dollars to elon musk and spacex and his companies but let's explain what this is first i mean the goal is I think, to own the skies, to, as I mentioned there, provide internet wherever you are in the world, but at least in the short term. And Elon Musk said it yesterday, the goal is not to go bankrupt. Yeah, exactly, Julia. This is a high cost endeavor, as you point out, could be $30 billion in expenditures. That is obviously a lot of money. And let's just make one thing clear. When Musk is talking, joking about avoiding bankruptcy, he's referring specifically to the Starlink aspect of SpaceX, not the broader part of the company that is making these uh, you know, big uh, missions for uh, you know, potential space uh, tourism down the road and obviously a lot of big contracts that it gets from NASA and other uh, agencies around the world to send uh, you know, uh, missions into space. So he's talking specifically about Starlink, which is part of SpaceX, And it's going to cost a lot of money, but he's hopeful. They have about 70,000 customers already signed up and, you know, plan to have the service launched in August. In August? Yeah, they said that they are getting ready to deploy their first 
uh, service as early as the uh, you know August of uh, this year. How quickly? What type of uh, you know coverage will some of the customers actually receive? I think remains to be seen. I mean, satellite internet has long been a promise and a dream as something that could bring you know the internet to a wider array of customers around the globe. So far, it's been a bit of a pipe dream, but we might finally be able to get it commercialized because of Elon Musk and SpaceX. Yeah, I was about to say, if anyone can do it, Elon Musk can. Although there was a tweet this week where, and I don't know whether you saw it, Paul, where uh, Elon Musk was ranting about the FAA's rules because he had to postpone a rocket launch because a plane flew over. Look at this. Launch called off today as an aircraft entered the keep out zone, which is unreasonably gigantic. So in order to create this global constellation of satellites, you've got to be able to get them up there in the first place. And Elon Musk was having some difficulties this week. Yeah. Elon Musk complaining about something on Twitter. The the sky is blue. Water is wet. <laughs> you said it. Not Wake me when he's or says something nice. Visionary. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you. Paula Monica. Thank you for that. All right. Let me bring you up to speed now with some of the other stories making headlines around the world. In Surfside, Florida, the search continues for the 149 people that remain missing after last week's tower collapse. Rescue workers say they're still hopeful for that more survivors may be found, though at least 12 lives have been lost. The US president says he'll visit the site on Thursday. A historic heat wave is engulfing the Pacific Northwest. Over 230 people have lost their lives in Western Canada since Friday, and there have been more than 60 reported deaths in the United States. CNN's Paula Newton joins me now with more. Paula, these are astonishingly high temperatures, and it's no surprise that, that people are struggling with these extreme temperatures. Yeah, and to join really those numbers that we've been hearing about the heat, unfortunately, those uh, translate into calls to paramedics and to calls to 911. And really, officials were so stricken uh, earlier this week, uh, Julia, when they were talking about this. The chief coroner in British Columbia saying 233 deaths. Now, look, she's saying, I can't, oh, since Friday, so just in a span of four days, she can't say all of them were related to heat, but dozens of them were. What was happening, Julia, is that people were in heat distress before they really knew it. The temperatures so unbearably hot, over 40 degrees Celsius at least. Linton, British Columbia, for the third day in a row, Tuesday recorded the highest temperature ever in Canada at uh, about 47 and some odd degrees Celsius. That is hotter than the record temperature of Las Vegas. And, and Julia, this isn't changing. You know, we discuss uh, on your show many times the impact uh, of climate. You know, Environment Canada has said repeatedly in their climate change report that what would normally have been a once in a century event will now be once every 20 years, perhaps once every five years. And as if on cue, Julia, again, wildfires now breaking out in British Columbia uh, overnight fires really there, at least two of them now burning out of control, saying it was so hot that helicopters had to stall their engines from overheating. This is becoming a very precarious situation as that so-called heat dome moves further east throughout Canada and as we've been seeing as well through the United States. 
Yeah, I mean, it's dangerous for so many reasons, Paula. And I think you, you raise a great point that is this the year, the year finally that the sceptics over global warming suddenly quiet down and we take more action, whether it's business or as individuals, about protecting the environment. But I just wonder in the short term, what are people being told to, to protect themselves and what impact are we seeing on infrastructure too? I mean, just basic things like roads, they were not built. Buildings were not built to sustain these kind of temperatures. Yeah, we have seen things like cables melting down, right. air conditioners not working, ventilation that would normally be adequate is not. Again, in the region where we've had this heat wave in Canada and the United States, not an area that normally would have electricity. Obviously, brownouts, blackouts now also a threat. I think what's key here, though, is you make the issue about a public health emergency. So when you think about the fact that you might have a snowstorm or a tornado or a hurricane, people prepare, right? Businesses and people in general, in order to keep themselves and their families safe, need to prepare in exactly the same way. And that is the way that people are beginning to look at extreme heat. So whether you're a business or you're taking care of your family, again, remembering the elderly and young children are the most vulnerable. When you see the forecast coming, get to those cooling centers, make sure you are cool. What was just so sad, Julia, is people would arrive at the homes and their loved ones and did not know that they were in distress because their loved ones couldn't really feel it until it was too late especially vulnerable as well, are very young children. All of this, as you just pointed out, perhaps having to change the way all of us react when we know that a heat wave is coming. Absolutely, Paula, and some great advice there. And um, yes, people, if you're watching, protect yourselves as best you can. Thank you for that. Okay, North Korea's leader has reportedly berated senior officials for failing to enforce COVID prevention measures. According to state media, Kim Jong-un said their negligence had caused, quote, a great crisis that risked the safety of the country. But the report did not elaborate on the nature of the incident. Okay, so to come here on First Move, a ride-hailing road test. It's next stop in the NYSE for China's Diddy as Uber and Lyft see a reopening recovery. Is the gig economy resurgence complete. And COVID and the end of cash. Why Latin America fintech, while I is betting pandemic changes are here to stay. Stay with us. Welcome back to First Move, live from New York, where we're bracing for the hottest day of our summer heat wave yet, with temperatures nearing 38 degrees Celsius. That's 100 Fahrenheit, if that's the measure you use. A not-so-hot open, though, ahead for the U.S. majors. Softness after a record-setting day for the S&P and the Nasdaq on Tuesday. What is red-hot, however, and we've discussed it already, is the IPO market. Chinese ride-hailing and mobility app Didi, just one of many new listings on tap today, including cybersecurity startup Sentinel One. Great timing for these guys. Manufacturing outsourcing firm Zometry biometric ID verification company ClearSecure and Legal Zoom, an online legal document company, all beginning trading today and all pricing above their expected range. You know, all technology firms, look at that too. There's a really stark message in those that are coming to market at this moment. But for now, let's return to China's Diddy. The IPO value is at $67 billion, not so did he, making it the biggest U.S. IPO, in fact, by a Chinese company since Alibaba's seven years ago. Joining us now, Dan Ives, Managing Director of Equity Research at Wedbush Securities. Dan, if you've been listening to the show, you can tell I'm super excited about this one. Talk to me about what uh, you think as far as Diddy is concerned. What is this company and what's the opportunity? Yeah, I mean, look, I think this is, as you talked about, most anticipated Chinese IPO since Alibaba. But, but it's one of those unicorns in terms of Chinese tech players going after the gig economy. 
That's a trillion dollar market. I mean, when you think about China, by 2030, you have about 70% of the population living in cities. You know, many don't have cars, especially compared to the U.S. This is just a massive market opportunity. And now investors get the opportunity, of course, not just to play Uber and Lyft, but play that Chinese play here with Diddy a long time coming. Yeah, and it's that stat for me as well. If indeed 70% of the Chinese population, we're talking what 1.4 billion people are living in urbanized environments, that's too many people trying to be on the road in cars. Perhaps ride hailing is a far better opportunity. And I talked earlier on just in terms of the cost difference, at least at this stage too. But it's not just about that for these guys. It's about looking at the mobility value chain, as far as I can see too. They see value in electric vehicles and we've all talked about the pollution aspects of operating in some of the biggest cities and some of the second and third tier cities too. Do you see this as a huge part of the story as well, or at least some part of the story? Yeah, it's a big part because you, you could say the sort of tip of the sphere is ride sharing, but the broader ecosystem, what they're tapping into, especially on the EV, is that green tidal wave. And, and that, especially given the broader climate, what we're seeing in China, I and mean, Didi's their pure plane really have an iron fence around that market. You know, when you compare it even to the U.S., you continue to have Uber and Lyft, where, where they battle it out in Game of Thrones style. Didi really owns China, and they're going to continue to expand throughout Asia. And I think you look at this, it's a pure play, almost an Amazon-like model, especially going to China you know, when it comes to e-commerce, but more importantly from, uh, from the EV side. Yeah, I mean, I think they've got around a million electric vehicles on the platform already and clearly hoping to scale that up around a third, 30%, I think, of the charging infrastructure as well in China, which is, of course, going to be crucial as well. It's a huge country, um, just to be clear. And, of course, that ties to some of the broader concerns when we talk about Chinese tech companies about the prospect of tighter regulation. They're a giant technology company. They are by far the most dominant player in, in ride hailing. Any concerns there, particularly given when you're talking about electric vehicles, to your point, the uh, green tidal wave that we're seeing in China and trying to sort of enable mobility in cities, perhaps they align to some degree, if not to a greater degree, with regulatory thinking, at least in China? Yeah, that's a great point, because I think when you look at the regulatory, of course, Alibaba, Baidu, JD, and others, they continue to be Tencent in the, the sort of hair as a regulators. I think Diddy, that's part of what investors are going to see. I don't really see too much regulation issues there from an antitrust or, you know, in terms of some of those other sort of anti-competitive issues. And I think that's important because when you look at what's happened, of course, in the U.S. and China, that's an overhang, not just on U.S., but Chinese tech stocks. Diddy, I think they've done a good job in terms of you know, really broadening out the market, but going to areas where they, they could really expand and not get into those regulatory crosshairs from Beijing. Because clearly Big Brother's watching when it comes to EV, but I think Diddy's on the right side of this. What about potential growth opportunities? Um, Claire and I were talking about not only within China, which is clearly a huge market in of itself, but also perhaps looking around and looking at other emerging markets that have the same kind of challenges, the same kind of structures. Brazil, of course, is already one that they're, they're focusing on, but it's such a tiny fraction of the revenues that they're bringing in right now. Um, do you see that as an opportunity? Because clearly, if you look internally in China, and perhaps some of the comparisons that you could make with an Uber, for example, is delivery, 
not an option in China. I don't think it's just dominated by other big players. Well, look, I, I think also if you look at Uber, I mean, they kind of went down that path as well, going after so many different countries and had to scale that back. I think when you look at Didi, because of the China market and just the secular growth, I think some of these other areas are sort of the growth story when you look out the next three, four or five years. For now, they're going to continue to focus on China and broader Asia because, you know, we're talking about a market that's about three to five percent penetrated today. And those trends, unless they drop the ball, I mean, they're going to continue to see massive growth. And this is something in the coupling between U.S. and China and tech. U.S. investors want to play Chinese tech names. And I think that's what that's very interesting to see the appetite as you see this play out, and not just today, but over the coming weeks and months in terms of how the stock reacts. Yeah, great point. And the stock reaction was where I was coming to next and just valuation here. I mean, I've seen a number of analysts point out that actually this gives them an approximate valuation, at least where they've priced this IPO, where they were raising money back in in 2018. And, you know, they've, they've had some challenges. They've had questions over the security of, of passengers. Then, of course, COVID hit in 2019, which was a sort of superstorm for the gig economy and for ride hailing in general. What do you make of of sort of valuation here? And what are you saying to investors about potentially getting in or not here? Well, especially on the on the gig economy. And we saw similar with Uber and Lyft. And these companies have really been through a Category 5 storm, yeah. especially with COVID and what we're seeing with ride sharing. But now the issue, just as we're seeing with Uber, it's about drivers, price surging, and to make sure you start to see growth here. We love playing the gig economy. I think Diddy's a great way to play the Chinese side of it. But it's an execution story, and I think that's what they're going to need to prove out, especially as you're starting to see this sort of massive rebound in the gig economy names, Uber and Lyft. But it all it's that balance, and that's what Diddy's going after, especially as they really have an iron fence around that Chinese market. Yeah, and I mean, as I've come out of that and sort of pivoted away from saying, look, safety comes first, and then we'll focus on growth. And for all the challenges, they've still seen what double-digit growth, I think, over the last few years. So it's, it's, going to be, um, it's going to be an interesting story to watch. Dan, always great to get your insight and perspective. Dan Thank Ives you. of Wedbush Securities there. Great to chat to you, sir, as always. The market opens next. We'll see how it trades. Stay with us. Welcome back to First Move and U.S. markets are open for business on this steamy Wednesday on Wall Street. Popsicle weather for investors. The bulls hoping for some IPO pops too as Diddy and other big names make their market debut. Stocks having trouble popping higher though, you can see, uh, in early trade at least, despite a better than expected pop in U.S. payroll numbers. New numbers show private firms adding a greater than expected 692,000 new positions this month, a sign Perhaps that Friday's U.S. jobs numbers might be strong, too. A scorching petrol pop, too, going on in the market. Brent and U.S. crude up around 1%, as data shows U.S. crude supplies falling at a faster-than-expected rate. Remember, OPEC Plus meets tomorrow to discuss production levels and commodities wrapping up a mixed month, in fact. Overall, crude up more than 10%, natural gas up 22%, but aluminium only rising a modest amount, 2.4%, as you can see, and sizable losses for both copper and lumber, despite monster gains in prior months too. So that's a relief, I think, for the broader industry that use them. Now, many times on First Move, we've shone a light on the unbanked around the world, especially in cash-driven economies where traditional banks underserve their customers. 
The pandemic changed a lot of that. According to a report commissioned by MasterCard last year, 40 million people in Latin America became banked within five months as savers rushed to protect their stimulus payments too. And it seems cheap and nimble disruptors like Voila are benefiting the most. Having conquered Argentina, Voila is now making inroads into Mexico. Pierre Paolo Barbieri is founder and CEO of Voila, and he joins us now. I love the name beyond anything else. Um, Fantastic. Let's be clear, you saw a huge opportunity back in 2017, so long before the pandemic hit in Argentina, to provide financial services to those that are simply unbanked. Talk us through what you saw and what you now provide. Thank you so much for having me. Uh, Walla started as a universal account with a global card that you can use for any of your digital purchases. And what we saw is an unbanked continent. In Latin America, over 50% of adults have never had access to a payment mechanism that is not cash. And that's what we're here to solve. So we started with that premise that you can buy anything you want anywhere around the world with a global card. And then we've evolved from that. So now you can pay your bills, you can pay your cell phone, you can invest, you can take a loan, create a credit history. And now we even have merchant acquiring services that we launched just a few months ago to help not just consumers, but also small businesses. And, and as you said, we, we started in Argentina, where 50% of adults had been completely left out of the financial system. And now we're in Mexico, a country where around 65% of the population has never had a card to pay with. I mean, this is astonishing. It's the ultimate disruption in terms of financial products and easier access to finance, online finance in particular. And yet it's not disruption at all. And as you say, the statistics are so vast for the people that simply don't have access really to anything other than cash. It's absolutely life changing. And the growth that you've seen is pretty astonishing, too. I mean, if I have this correct, 20 percent of people between the ages of 20 and 24 years old in Argentina have one of your cards. Actually, it's almost like 25% now and and almost 10% of the whole country, which is insane. Um, But we're very happy because it means that there is demand for these kinds of services. But people had been left outside of the system for so long. And as we always say, we ask people to believe in democracy and capitalism, but then we don't give them access to the system. And so we're here to provide that access to allow people to create a credit history, to give them their first loan, their first investment or savings product, and even an insurance product, which is essential, as the World Bank says, for for emerging markets to be able to grow out of the middle income trap. Whether you're looking at Argentina or you're looking at Mexico, they are countries that have had a history of challenges in terms of the economy, in terms of the currency. Um, How are you pricing risk when you're talking about people that traditionally have only used cash? And to your exact point, building a credit history is so essential to be able to bring the cost of credit down. How are you pricing the risk of giving money to these people or access to credit? That's a, that, that, that's a great question, Julia. So what we've done is start with the most inclusive possible product. And so if you start with a revolving credit card, it's very difficult because you have to turn 90% of people away. Why? Because they don't have a credit history. Why don't right. they have a credit history? Because they've never had a card. So it's a, it's a self-fulfilling prophecy that is very negative and has a very negative externality. What we do is start with debit. So we give everyone a debit card. And so you can only spend at first what you have on the card or what you have on the Walla ecosystem. And as you grow that amount, and as we know a little bit more about you, how much you make and how you're paying, your bill payments, your cell phone top-ups, now we even have a transport card in Argentina, like, like 
you know, the MetroCard in New York or the BART, we create a credit history for you. And then we can give you access first to installment payments, which are very popular in Latin America, and then personal loans. And with those personal loans, you can, you know, become an entrepreneur or you can do, you know, remodeling in your home. Anything that you want, you can access at an affordable rate that wasn't accessible to you before because you didn't have a history. So with debit, we are able to give a lot of people access to building that history just with the money that they have, no more than that, and then allow them access into credit and, and you know, make it rewards-based. So the more we know about you and the more you pay back, the lower your financial cost and the more inclusive it is. But it has to start from a product that we can give everyone. Just in the last month, we issued over 130,000 cards in Argentina. That's like 0.3% of the population in one month. And we issued over 40,000 cards in Mexico. And so as we see this, it's a great opportunity to finally bank Latin America and end this um, lack of financial access that has been so unfair to these societies for so long. Yeah, and I'm assuming in terms of how you make money here, it's it's fees on, on the credit card. I, I know you're in growth phase. We're in year four, which is just astonishing in of itself. But I'm just looking down the number of people that have invested in you and the names, Tencent, SoftBank, uh, Soros, Goldman Sachs Investment Partners, um, 0.72. I mean, these are huge names that are looking at what you're doing and saying we see great growth opportunities in this as well. Are you profitable? No, not yet. And that was okay. that was definitely part of the plan. When I when I started this in 2017, we were very lucky to have investors that understood that if you're going to give everyone a free account and a free debit card, things that are naturally free in the United States where I lived for 12 years, but I wanted to bring it to Latin America where the banks charge you opening fees and maintenance fees, renewal fees, all those bad things that, that they don't do in the developed world. And sometimes it's the same institutions, but they do it in Latin America. We had to think long term and we had to think about real scale. And so well, I'm very happy to tell you that even though we're not profitable, we already cover um, just about 70% of our costs in Argentina. And, and as you know, Argentina has gone through very difficult times in the last few years, particularly from a macroeconomic perspective. But what started as an account now has you know, investment services, it has lending, it has merchant acquiring services, and now even insurance, which we just launched three months ago. So you can access insurance services and we act as a broker for those insurance hmm. products and we get a small fee from the provider of insurance. But if you think about it, we are cutting 80 to 90% of the costs that it would have been for that same insurance company to provide that product. And so we don't take our money from the user. We just provide the financial marketplace and we charge the companies that sell those services. But we always make it a priority to have our social mission clear. So the products need to be not just inclusive, but also very transparently priced. Because one of the problems in the, in the emerging markets, and in particular with middle class and lower middle class audiences, is that people give them products and they are not transparent. So the people that have the least end up paying for things that they didn't really know about. And we, we really don't want that kind of business. And so we're very happy about the growth trajectory. And in fact, our investors are telling us to invest more and grow more. I'm sure they are. I have 30 seconds. You know, we, we said that you're sort of a disruptor, but you're not because you're going for parts of the market that the big banks aren't accessing. What's the greater likelihood here that they come and try and buy you to operate and, and do what you're doing? Or are one day you're going to go in and sort of buy them and sort them out? Well, we'll see, but we're not for sale. We're very happy with our growth. Um, we okay. are in the middle of a regulatory process. We're in the middle of a regulatory process with the Argentine Central Bank, where we, we just bought a bank license that needs to be approved by the central bank. And we're also very happy with our growth in Mexico. Mexico is a country of 130 
million people, 65% of which have never had a card. And we're very happy to be now the fastest growing fintech in Mexico. So I think that there's a lot of opportunities in Latin America for innovation, for technology to disrupt and to create better products that are more transparent and more inclusive. Awesome. We will chat again. Got so many more questions for you. I'm going to be fascinated to watch you rise. Um, great to have you with us. Pierre Paolo Barbieri, they're the founder. Thank you so much for your time. Voila. No, thank you. All right. And finally, on first move, back in the 70s, James Bond fans saw this flying car with the bad guy behind the wheel. Well, fast forward nearly 50 years and a prototype flying car has completed a half hour test between two cities in Slovakia. It's called the Air Car and it transforms from sports car to aircraft in under three minutes. I'm trying to look at the video and talk here, which is hard. Wow, look at that. And lands on a traditional runway. One big benefit, no need to find an airport parking to get home. That's pretty cool. I want a red one. That's it for the show. If you've missed any of our interviews today, they will be on my Twitter and Instagram pages. Search for at CNN. In the meantime, stay safe. I'll see you tomorrow. Marketplace Europe is up next. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, host of the Chasing Life podcast. In honor of our 10th season, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message at 470-396-0832 and tell us how you chase life. It could be used on an upcoming episode.